Welcome to another episode of Where's This Going? And of course, before I get started, I need to shout out my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. At U.S. Wellness Meats, they supply nutrient-dense, all-natural foods to professional football and baseball teams, colleges, individual athletes at the highest levels of every single major sport. You have health professionals, respected gourmet chefs, fine dining establishments, and families all over the country in every single state, Canada and Puerto Rico, who naturally, of course, are just looking for the best quality food on the planet. There really is a difference in grass-fed products. All of U.S. Wellness Meats' beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Yes, you heard that correctly. I said 100%. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. Check out their wild Alaskan sockeye smoked salmon and their fresh Atlantic sea scallops, two of my all-time personal favorites. On top of that, use promo code PODCAST for 15% off your next order at uswellnessmeats.com where they have over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store. You may have heard me talk about it before, but I want to reiterate that all of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. Once again, that's code PODCAST for 15% off your next order at uswellnessmeats.com. And another shout out to Infinite CBD. Use promo code WTG10 and receive 10% off your next order at infinitecbd.com. And my next guest today, you've probably seen her at Comedy Central's Live at Gotham. She recently appeared on Comedy Central's This Week at the Comedy Cellar. NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hulu's Coming to the Stage. She recently released her comedy album, Emotionally Exhausting, on iTunes and Amazon. She is the absolutely funny and incredibly hardworking Liz Mealy. Liz Mealy, thanks Hi. for being here. Hi. So, as I told you right before we started, I like to ask my guests a little something of what we don't know about you, a little story to, to kind of get us started. You said you, you thought of something. Yeah. Um, it's your time to shine. It's mostly boring, but I don't, I don't drink. I, oh. uh, I haven't drank, I think, in five years. Um, not because, like, I did it too much. Um, I'm allergic to yeast, and it just narrowed it down to, like, triple distilled vodka and like gin and whiskey and I didn't like gin or whiskey and then I just didn't think vodka was that great and I wasn't a big drinker to begin with it suppresses your immune system I already have a shitty immune system so it was like one of the first things I gave up a lot of stuff because of my stomach but it was the first thing I gave up and so far I haven't looked back so it's been five years I think so I think it's been five wow yeah so there's like all these like I mean most comics most comics there's a lot of comics that are sober for uh different reasons and so they'll you know they'll post on like facebook they're like 12 years sober it's changed my life my girl loves me more like all this stuff and i'm like 
man, I wish I had a story. <laughs> like, I wish I had a, like, I woke up in a basement. I didn't know who I was or what was in my butt. And now I'm just like, I can't live like that. And But I have nothing. I'm just like, it hurt my tum-tum. And now I'm not fun to be around. <laughs> there's also a lot of comics that uh, are not sober. Yeah, there's those. They'll get there or they'll die. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, there, you hear a lot of the, the old Boston comics, I think. like the, the They're all dead. That's a good them. point. Yeah, all of them were dead. That's nice. That's a yeah. good way to start. <laughs> all right. So <laughs> there's a story I actually want to read to you. I was doing a little digging um, on your website. Actually, really well-made website. Why, thank you. I'm a very organized, LizMealy.com. Thank you so much. Um, it's a, it's a kind of an excerpt from one of the, the New Yorker articles back okay. in, I think it's 04. Back uh, a while. Yeah, that makes sense. I started in 02. Okay, yeah. So, so it's because it talks about kind of being, yeah, young, a, being a young comic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to read I wonder what I said. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they have what you said. Okay. All right, here we go. It's a, it, it says, Liz decided at 15 that she wanted to be a comic. During high school, she wrote letters to every comic and comedy writer that she could track down and asked for career advice. One afternoon, George Carlin called. They spoke for 15 minutes, and he gave her pointers, though she was too excited to remember what she, he said. Not long afterward, she learned about, quote-unquote, bringers, where you get stage time in return for bringing in audience members, usually people you know. During the school year, she did bringer shows twice a month in New York, corralling teachers, friends, and the staff of her parents' animal clinics. By summer, she was doing a bringer every week for the first nine months. Afraid for her safety, her father supervised the expeditions to the city. Liz wouldn't allow him to watch her perform, so he waited out her sets at Starbucks. During her senior year, Liz began barking for Ha whenever she could, and in the summer before she started college at the new school, she was doing 20 shows a week. Tuesdays and Wednesdays are now her class days back in 04. But she still does 11 shows a week at Ha. Often while she waits for a set, she does her homework at the bar. I thought it was a, a nice story because I was, I was actually talking to a, to a friend earlier. We were talking about kind of hustling and, and putting, in, putting in the work. And shout out Petra. And I think this is a really beautiful story of someone who clearly is driven to get to a goal. And is literally willing to, I mean, 20 shows a week is, is no joke. Doing homework at the bar before you're set is no joke. Do you, do you remember those days? I, I do. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, um, so, yeah, I, I, I've always, I'm still kind of a psychopath. I, um, I, when I decide I want to do something, I don't half-ass it. And if I am half-assing it, it's like, it's because it's like homework to me. And comedy... I'm dyslexic, so school was always super hard for me, and it was always really frustrating that I would put in, you know, not just 100%, I would put in 120%, and I would be getting Bs back. And I thought, well, this doesn't feel fair. Like, I'm being judged on something that no matter how hard I work at it, I'm never going to get better. Even, I'm 34 now, I'm still not good at spelling, I'm horrible at grammar, but if you look beyond that... I'm a great writer. I'm a thoughtful writer. I'm an interesting writer. I'm a unique writer. And it wasn't until I got to the new school where they started to actually look at that aspect. I, it was the only time in my life that people actually saw what I was trying to do. And so with comedy, I knew I wanted to express myself. I had always written stories. I was oh, kind of a silly kid, but like I, um, I, didn't want any, I didn't want anybody to read them because it was all garbage and it looked like garbage and it, you know, it looked like hieroglyphics at points. I mean, I wish emojis, I had emojis when I was growing up. I would have wrote the best emoji stories. So for me, it was when I discovered stand-up, it was this kind of compromise where I could actually 
tell my stories and nobody ever had to see the the written part of it. And I fell in love with it so hard and it made me so happy at a time where I was absolutely miserable that I couldn't, everything, and this is like before podcasts. So anything you learned about comedy was like through these like books. I think like Bill Maher wrote a book about four, like loosely based off, you know, his experience was like four comedians on the road. And like I read Simbad's book and like Margaret Cho had a book and there'd be interviews on NPR and anything. It was so much harder to find out about comedians experiences but everything that kept coming up in like how to write uh jokes kind of books and people's memoirs was that it took 10 years to find your voice you had to get up as much as possible you had to write as much as possible I mean I do remember that conversation with Carlin I don't remember like the details but I remember afterwards like writing down what he said and it was I mean every comic from me to just about anybody you'll meet will tell you the basics which is you got to get up as much as possible you got to write as much as possible and that's just fundamentals. Now they don't talk about the nitty gritty, like, you know, you have to edit and you have to be honest with the reactions. You know, when you see these comics that have been doing it 15 years and they're just as unfunny as they were year one, it's because they're not listening back to the audio or they're not even recording it and noticing that that line never gets a laugh. Why do you keep doing that line? What is nobody's relating to that line. Nobody's connecting to that line. But if, you know, you bomb and you're going around saying that you killed, you're never going to grow. So I think on top of getting up as much as you can, on top of writing as much as you can, there has to be this brutal awareness of what's actually happening because you are your own coach. If you play soccer, there's a guy on the sidelines going, Felix, every time you kick the ball, it goes to the left because your foot is this way. And we told you, you got to kick it this way. I don't know anything about sports. But as a comic, you have to go up there. And if a joke bombs, you have to go, all right, it bombed. First fact. I don't know why it bombed. Let me see where I lost them. Let me see what I'm trying to say. What I'm, let me see what the, the little like the little nuances that seem to be going well. Like there's so much extra work that you have to do that nobody's doing. And I just knew at a young age from the little research that I did that it was all about getting comfortable on stage, getting real reactions from people. And so I just, I did what I was told to do. Where did you find that comfort on stage? Was it through going up and experience and going up three, four times a night, maybe 20 shows a week? Um, getting comfortable on stage is absolutely, there's no way to get beyond experience. I, I mean, maybe some people are innately comfortable. I was not. Um, truly being comfortable, getting any words out of your mouth is just with experience, but then even just the joke you're working on. So I could be working on, like I'm doing two new joke nights tonight and it's going to be awkward just because they, some jokes I've never even said before. Some I've only said three times. Some of them I've add lines to them. So you, you get a little bit better at it, but the, my joke sequence is mostly getting the idea out like writing it down, then kind of memorizing it on my own as best I can, and then going on stage and kind of doing some of it I memorize, but also letting myself be loose a little bit, recording all of it, listening back to the audio, practicing by myself, going back on stage. Like it's a lot of, it's extremely repetitive and it's also extremely um, like nitty gritty where you're like, oh, that line, I tripped over that line. So maybe that's why it didn't work. And, you know, if I put this line here, I think it'll make better sense. Like it's, it's, um, I definitely have OCD. It's definitely a positive in comedy, a negative everywhere else. Um, but it's it's getting up a lot. I needed, I'm not innately good at anything. I don't think I got good at this without consistently and constantly getting up and consistently and constantly writing. Do you envy people that where you feel like 
it might naturally come to them a little bit easier. Yeah, it sounds like they have a lot of free time. Like yeah. I, I'm, I've never been that person. I and and just about anything I do, I'm not. I truly think I came out with zero skills. Um, and maybe I would say grit might be the only one. Like if I want to do it, I'll figure it out. Um, I know nothing about technology, but I'm the one that's kind of teaching people about social media and I'm teaching people about like basic editing, like all this kind of basic stuff because I needed to do it on my own. I'm impatient. I don't have a lot of money. So I'm one of those people that if, if it's necessary or if it's important to me, I'll figure it out and I'll figure it out to be as simple and as efficient as I possibly can because I'm not great at anything. <laughs> and when you're, you talk about like that writing process, the, the looking back at your work, cutting, changing it up a little, will you kind of take us through exactly the way that you come up with your content? Yeah, I mean, I've always said, I guess, I say it starts with a feeling. I mean, I think it's really unhelpful and maybe, and this is my perspective, I think that everybody has their own ways of doing things in their own philosophies. But to say like, what is funny about this is such a unhelpful question. To me, I always go, why do I feel the way I feel about this? And I follow a feeling. So, you know, uh, I, my thought is I, I truly follow strong emotions. Um, what causes extreme anger, what causes extreme confusion, um, uh, depression, uh, giddiness, um, uh, being completely lost like what'll happen is something happens in my life and it's kind of a sticky feeling I'm extremely angry and it's been 45 minutes and I'm still like I will murder everyone angry or something happened and I can't get it out of my brain and I just don't understand why it's bothering me or I'm just super sad and I feel like I can't think about anything else I'm so sad and I kind of follow that feeling and I go all right well why why am I this sad you've been through a breakup before why are you this sad about this breakup? Well, because I feel like I, I, I feel like I really connected with them. I feel like I was emotionally present and it wasn't good enough. What does that make you think of? It makes me think that it, nothing matters and why do we even bother dating and I should just fucking get another cat. And like you just start to follow the inner dialogue and I start to kind of peel back the layers of my, my feelings, my thought process. And I get to the part where, because I feel like I'm such an emotive and crazy person that it all kind of stems from crazy. And I feel like that's where uh, my relatability is and because I think we all are. And then that's where my funny kind of comes from, which is I'm just brutally honest about what a flawed person I am. And I think that can be extremely relatable, especially in extreme emotions. Everybody gets road rage. Everybody gets heartbreak. Everybody gets wanting to murder somebody in the bank line. Like it's, it's that kind of... Um, that's where most of my process starts. And then the next step is, you know, writing out where it's going to go. And then I start testing it on stage. And truly, I record every set and I follow the reactions. So, you know, now I innately kind of, I know my voice and I innately know, for the most part, what's going to get a reaction. There's some times where I'm like, oh, I didn't, I had no idea that line would have gotten a laugh. I just thought that was a setup. And then there's some times where I'm like, that was the punchline and no one is with me. And I follow that and I start to let the audience help me form the joke and the thought process. So, you know, I have this new joke about a woman asking to cut in line because she had a greeting card and she, you know, she was in a rush. And it started out and I, while it was happening, I was writing it down because it was so funny to me. So she cuts in line, but the guy's still, still being helped at the counter. And she turns to me and she goes, my best friend's mother died. 
<laughs> and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And she goes, yeah, she died during the holidays. And you know how that is. She always associate the death of her mother with the holidays and it's going to ruin the holidays for the rest of her life. And I was like, sure. And she goes, you know, when my own mother died. And I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, and I just flip out on stage and I basically do my whole inner dialogue. It's like, dude, like I let you, I said, I agreed to let you cut in line. I didn't agree to the sadness open mic that you're starting. Like, dude, there are 8 million people in the city. This is my alone time. And it, I took it on this entire rant of what my inner dialogue was because as I was happening, I was like, this bitch asked to cut in line. She did not ask for a friend. She didn't, you know what I mean? Like, and it, it's really about the greediness of humans or the, you know, the, the neediness of humans, whatever it is. And I, I mean, truly it, it went through, like, and I talk about being on my phone and how she's interrupting me. And it's like, dude, I'm trying, I'm trying to play a game. Like you're being a selfish bitch, but it, it like, it turns into a joke about cell phones because I was just following the laughs and where it was going. So this joke about this, you know, it really started about being a New Yorker. The fact that this woman is sharing her life with me and I'm annoyed because yeah. this is my time. This is my alone right. time. I'm in, a, I'm in a CVS line. Leave me alone. I did my favor. Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> and that is such a relatable thing for New Yorkers. That's where it's true, just New like, Yorker. Yeah, well, truly. Like, I'll help you with your baby carriage, but don't, don't, don't fucking try to make, don't try to be my friend. Like, dude, because <laughs> I do think, I, I, you know, they say New Yorkers are mean, but I don't think we're mean. We're in a rush. I'll help you. It, we're not me. I'll get my seat up for you. But if you're fucking going to be a dick about it or going to be weird about it, then I'm going to take it back. And so I think my jokes kind of, um, they, I have who I am and what's important to me, but the final product sometimes looks so different from the initial thought because I'm following where people are reacting to. And it might completely morph into a, like a totally different joke. Do you think the best comedy is through relatable moments? Um, you know, it depends on what you're saying is relatable. Like I, I kind of take back what I say. Yes. The, the, the short answer is yes, but who it's relating to is a larger thing. I think you have mainstream comedy, um, you know, which is, it, it hits a broader spectrum. So you're going to get like, think of like Larry the Cable Guy, huge success. Not what I consider funny, not something I would listen to, but you have to agree that he has value. He's a multi-million dollar comedian that clearly is relatable to people. So that's going to be more mainstream. Then you have somebody like Doug Stanhope who makes a career, I would say is kind of like a, like, um, you know, like a black flag. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like think of like a punk band, like think of like eighties punk where like they're revered, but like your dad doesn't know who they are. And he has just as much value if in my mind, if not more, than somebody like Larry the Cable Guy because he's talking about stuff that not everybody can relate to. And he's getting in kind of more of a niche market or more of a subgroup. And I think the internet has allowed more of these kind of punk band-like figures to blossom because you no longer have to hit the masses to make money. You no longer have to hit the masses to succeed because of YouTube and Netflix and, and um, you know, or Instagram probably more than Netflix, just these ability to put yourself out there without being plucked or picked. Do you feel like, where do you feel like you are on that spectrum of mainstream or do you have your own niche subgroup, as you say? Um, I'm definitely a punk band. I mean, I'm, I would, you know, a pop punk band from the nineties that broke up after two albums, you know, um, I, I, I do well in the clubs. I have a fan base. Um, 
it's growing. I don't have as many TV credits as my friends do. I'm more of a storyteller and a lot of um, the kind of growing TV credits are these five to seven minute sets and I have jokes that are five to seven minutes long, let alone several, you know what I mean? And so I think I've struggled as a storyteller to kind of be as mainstream, but where I really blossom is longer sets. I have two albums. I mean, I, my rent is paid by Sirius XM royalties. Like I'm, I'm in a place where I can, I have trouble posting short jokes because my shortest joke is a minute and a half, two minutes long. Where do you think that storytelling comes from? I'm very ranty. I'm very long winded. I've always, I remember a booker at the comic strip, uh, Starla. She is, uh, um, quite famous in my, you know, graduating class friend group of 15 years ago but I remember getting past there but she was like your setups are too long and I was like isn't that isn't that up to the audience though like if you get a reaction if the punchline is big enough to justify the setup is it too long so I have shorter setups but for the most part I have a lot of long setups I put jokes in my setups because I know they are a little long-winded, I've kind of made my own type of joke because I'm wordy. I just am. I've never, I've, I talk too much. We're, we're working that out right now. But I, um, I've learned to be more concise in the stand-up realm as opposed to off the cuff. But I put a lot, I, even though I say my jokes are a minute to five minutes long, there's a joke every 30 seconds. Right. I still, but I would say that that's the sub, like, you know, dating is hard for comedians. That's the joke. And then there's several jokes within it. Um, but I wouldn't want them to be separated. Sometimes they can't be separated. It's all to build up to this major punchline. Is it ever weird to you that, did you ever think one day you'd be making your living off of making other people laugh? I don't know if I had the confidence or self-esteem to think that was going to happen, but it was the always the goal. I mean, I think... I'm grateful. I'm when I feel sad and um, frustrated about my punk band status. Um, I remember that I have several friends that are funnier than I am in some ways, you know, outwardly more successful than I am that still have a job that still struggle to pay rent. And I, you know, I live pretty comfortably. Like I don't struggle to make rent. You know, there's some months where I'm just like, oh, we'll see what, well, you know, nothing organic this month. <laughs> um, can't be that person. Um, but I, I've made it so that I'm working and I'm comfortable and people know who I am and I'm growing my fan base. And, you know, even if it's just a hundred extra dollars a year, I seem to always be financially growing. And I'm, I'm fortunate. I wake up when I want to wake up or when my flight's going to leave and I tell jokes for a living. I mean, I don't really think I can complain. Like, this is what I wanted to do when I was a teenager and I'm doing it. At what age exactly, if you can remember, was there a moment in your kind of younger years that you knew, okay, like comedy's cool, but now I want to make comedy my life? I I mean, you kind of heard it. I, I immediately was like, I'm making it my life. I mean, I don't think I ever... I started... I discovered stand-up when I was 13. So, like, when I was younger, I thought I just wanted to be, like, a funny actress. Like, this is when, like, Sandra Bullock was doing a lot of pratfalls, and I was just, like, kind of look like her. I think I could do this. But I wasn't, like, I wasn't, like, I want to be an actress. It was just, like, I want to be funny, and it seems like this is the only way to do it. 
And then I discovered stand-up. Um, I couldn't even tell you who the first comic I saw was. I just saw that they were standing there and they were telling jokes. And I was like, I want that. I want that attention. I want to do that. And so I immediately started taping every half-hour special, every premium blend on VHS and going over to my girlfriend's houses and being like, yo, look at this. This is Mitch Hedberg. He's crazy. Look at this dude named Nick Swartz and he's nuts. Like, And like quoting them. I was so annoying. To be, I have no idea how I had and kept those friends. I like I, I still to this day talk in jokes. Like I can't even tell you. I see escalators are broke and my first thought, thought is you're welcome. They're now stairs. Like, you know what I mean? Like, sorry for the convenience. Like I can quote just about every comedian I watched when I was a teenager. And some of them are friends. Some of them, you know, are fam- like Jim Gaffigan had a half hour special and now he, like my parents know who he is. And so, um, I knew right away that I loved it. I started writing when I was like 14, 15, showing my friends in the hallway jokes. I mean, I still have stacks of paper of my first sets and I would send them to my girlfriends and they would star the jokes they thought like that's how I put my set together they would star the jokes they thought was the funniest and I would underline what I thought were punchlines and um once I did my first show is it was about getting up as much as I could and um I thought about this story recently I was talking to a, a guy that was opening for me um a couple of months ago in DC and I was always getting in trouble, but I, I think my, my, I know my dad was extremely strict. And so I had to, I'm the second oldest of five. I always had to, one day I always had to babysit my brothers and sisters. And the other day was like a free day. And that free day, once I started doing stand up, I always went to the city and I did stand up. And I forget what I did. I'm sure I got bad grades or I talked back or something, but I got grounded when I was 17. And my dad was like, you know, no internet, no TV. You can't sleep over anybody's friends. You can't do this. And I was like, okay but you can't take away comedy. I was like, I won't be okay if you take away comedy. I was like, I'll go there. I'll call you when I get there. I'll make sure there's somebody, a chaperone with me. I'll come immediately home back. But I was like, you can't, you can't take that away. And my dad's like, okay. I mean, that's, I'll forever give my dad credit for that because I truly was not okay as a person at that time in my life. I think I wasn't okay as a person until like three years ago. (laughs) But um, that was, that was, that made me happy and it's still the thing that gets me out of the bed in, in the morning. And I think at 17, if he would have grounded me for that, I don't think we would even have a friendship like or a relationship in any sense. Yeah, you talk about even in that article um, the impact that your dad had on your life. Yeah. And I think, I, mean, I think it's also remarkable to hear this kind of dedication to a craft like cross fields. You hear like athletes talk about it here, but... Actually, you're maybe like one of the first comedians that I've really heard. It feels like every single second it was like, how do I get better? And and it still feels like even today where you say, you know, you have fans and you're, you know, you're living comfortably off of it. It's still like, how do I make this better? How do I make this? How do I take this to the next level? What do you see as the next level for you now? Um... Because I think I excel more in a longer form. I mean, I started touring Europe and overseas the last seven years and they're starting to listen to podcasts, but they don't really listen to comedy. They do specials. So, you know, whenever I was overseas, they'd be like, oh, what's your special? But it's really hard to get a special here. And so I got close. It didn't happen. So now I think I'm going to self-produce the special. And now with like Instagram and YouTube... You can kind of self-release. Like I was, I self-released both my albums. It's the best decision I've ever made. I'm not Rihanna. It doesn't cost me millions of dollars to make an album. 
if I'm being honest, it cost me $2,000 to make an album. Wow. It's, it's, you know, I'm not saying that's not money, but for the amount of money it's given back to me and how it's changed my life, both the fans I've made, the people that have connected with me because of it, and then the royalty monies and the money I've made off just physically selling CDs, it's, it's, I don't even know the percentage, like 2,000, 10,000% wow. given back from the $2,000 I spent. I think it's worth borrowing the money from a friend if you don't have it to self-release. And I mean, there's some reasons to do it with a record label, but I had a connection to Sirius. That's really the only jump that you had to make. There's some things I learned from the first CD to the second CD, but you make so much more money by being the rights owner to your own material that I did a lot of research before I did my album with comics that have done both with a record label and on their own. And I was like, I'm smart enough to do this. I can figure this out and it's worth taking the risk. And each, and I made a viral video because of the first album because I did all, I researched social media and PR and that is half the reason I work to this day is because of that viral video. And um, I think to me, it's just about... If I want to expand my fan base, how are fans seeing stand-up? And they're seeing it online. I mean, Netflix and, and HBO specials and all that stuff still have value. I'm not saying they don't have value. But when they're unattainable to this middle degree because they're only giving out a handful of them a year, how do you continue to grow your fan base without being plucked? And I think it's about not listening to seven bigwigs on, at seven streaming networks and TV networks and going... I'm going to connect with them now. You know who, as I said, uh, as I told you earlier, I had your good friend Carmen Lynch on the show yeah. um, not too long ago. And we talked about, I, I imagine you're familiar with Andrew Schultz. Yeah. Who's, Andrew. I think, brilliant at kind of talking about exactly what you're talking about with regards to social media. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, he, it may, like all of his, like, I don't know, Instagram TV videos, I mean, those are super viewed and yeah. they're super well done. Do you think like for for a young comic that that's the way to go? Yeah, when you're ready, I think there's the mistake of and I've made this mistake as at a young age that I I think I would have had a different career if I would have held back a little bit. Yes, I think that is the right way to go when you want to be seen. And there take the same self-awareness you need to know if a joke is working or not is the same self-awareness you need of do I, should I be seen by others in the industry or not? to put out an album too early, to put out videos too early. You know, I'm not, I don't think you get one chance, but I think it's much harder to get second and third and fourth chances. And that's with how you treat people in this industry, how uh, you're viewed comedically. And I think the opportunities that you get and you uh, show up for and have the abilities for. And I was on TV pretty early. I um, my, I did, was on Comedy Central. I think I taped it when I was 21 and it aired when I was 22 or like 22 to 23. I can't remember. But, you know, started at 16 on TV in my early 20s. I knew that that wasn't enough and I was very close to getting late night a couple of times. And I auditioned for Montreal, God knows how many times, Montreal Comedy Festival, which is like a big deal, Aspen Comedy Festival, which was a big deal and is now defunct. But there was a bunch of things that I felt like I was ready because I wanted to be ready and because I had been on TV for seven minutes and I, did, I thought that was like, this is it, it's happening. And I wasn't. And I think people after a while, because they felt I wasn't ready for these bigger opportunities, stopped looking. 
And I think there is something to waiting to be seen until you can blow people's minds. And my best example for that is I went over to London and Europe 10, 11 years into my career and it was like another world. I mean, started making money, started being on like the best podcasts, on the best shows, people knowing who I am, um, getting again pretty close to some TV stuff there, getting an agent, doing well at the Fringe Festival. Like it was just so much easier because I was... It's almost like if I waited, I don't know if I had to wait 10 years, but if I had waited a little longer to be seen and noted, I would have been ready for some of the opportunities instead of them passing me over. And there's a lot of people even to this day that won't look at me because they think they know what I do. And I've changed drastically even in the last couple of years, let alone seven, eight, nine years ago. How do you feel like you've changed from even 15 years ago to your, from your first like early, early work to even, as you say, just a couple of years ago? Um, I was extremely deadpan until about, I would say, five years ago. I read that in an article. That's how somebody, I think one of the articles that you linked to on your site, they, they call you a little like monotonous or deadpan. And I was just, and like listening to you for the past 30 minutes, I'm like, this is not really what I read. Yeah. And I think in general, when I was younger, I was much meeker. Even though I was doing stand up, I was extremely shy. I was scared. You know, I grew up in a house where speak when spoken to, you know, my thoughts didn't necessarily matter. I was very much taught to take care of my family and not to talk back and to be um, just a person that is helping the family. And it took me a long time to realize I had opinions because I wasn't in a home that nurtured those. And I clearly was feeling some kind of stifled because I was seeing these comedians on TV having strong opinions. And I was like, man, I wish, dude, my first thought was I wish I had strong opinions. And wow. now I'm like, I wish I had softer opinions. I'm very aggressive. Like I'm, the, I'm an extremely aggressive person. And sometimes I have to, because I get to speak my opinions all day, every day on every form, both professionally online. I sometimes am in a coffee shop and I'm like, take it down a notch, Liz. You are so obnoxious. So there is a part of me that, um, what was the question again? I got. Uh, oh, we were just kind of talking about how I, t- I talked about this article that said that you were monotonous. Oh yeah, monotonous, how, sorry. how you ch- how you changed and how you've progressed as a comedian over the past maybe five, ten. So the biggest note most people gave me, I would say, after about five or six years, is that off stage Liz was very different than on stage Liz, and I would get really frustrated because why can't that be a stage persona? I mean, Judah Friedlander is not the same person he is on stage. Um, Todd Barry isn't the same person he is on stage. You, you know, Jim Gaffigan isn't whispering to people randomly. Like, why am I not allowed to have a stage presence? But if I was being perfectly honest, I wanted it to be a little, I wanted to be who I was on stage. I was just scared. And, and I also, my brain seems to work faster than my mouth sometimes. And you can't really stutter on stage or, or trip over your words because you could ruin punchlines, which I do now a lot more than I did before. And it takes a different, it's a different strength and it's much harder and it's scarier and you make more mistakes being kind of more ranty and gregarious and all over the place. And it was hard and it was scary. And I think both emotionally and comedically, I wasn't 
there or ready and even just shouting and, and gesticulating or moving. Like I'm not a big mover even to this day on stage, but now I do a lot more movement than I ever did. And that's only been like the last three years. And at what age did you feel like, sorry, you found that voice that you're kind of talking about because you said like at home, your, your opinion didn't really matter. And that does it, was it once you like kind of left home that you felt as a person in your own private life, you could like actually have an opinion that mattered or was it through comedy that kind of gave you that outlet that, oh, hey, I'm saying something people are actually listening for once? Yeah, I think it took a couple of years of my jokes doing well and people giving me both comedians and audience members giving me compliments that I was like, oh, maybe I, maybe I do have thought. Like, I remember the first compliments I would get were that I was really smart and I honestly never felt smart. I mean, I, I read a book called The Dyslexic Advantage when I was 25 and that was the first book that I was like, oh, maybe I am smart. Maybe my learning disability really kind of, it hinders me in a lot of ways that sometimes still makes me feel dumb. But at the end of the day, I'm just not good at grammar. I'm just not good at spelling. I'm just not good at math. But there's all these things that aren't that, that I'm pretty good at and, and worked really hard to get even better at. And so I think I had a lot of low self-esteem attached to my intelligence and my abilities and through comedy, I, it helped build that up the same way that you, you know, you go to the gym for the first time when you're younger and you're like, oh, this stuff is heavy and I feel weak and everybody's stronger than me. And then you keep pushing yourself. And next thing you know, you're the strongest one at the gym and you're the one being like, hey, if you do that, you'll get stronger over here. And you're giving people pointers. And I think experience in general is always going to make you more confident and stronger and, and connect you more to yourself. And so I think just doing it more, getting good responses, feeling more connected to the material just made me start to really understand myself in ways that I, I didn't before. I used to tell people I wasn't good at talking and connecting to people. And after about six years of comedy, it just wasn't true anymore. Like I started to see that if I was at a party, I could, we could talk about snowboarding. I don't know anything about it, but I can talk about just about anything. I know how to I started a podcast for um, the Jed Foundation where I interview like kind of celebrity like people that are talking about their mental illness. And I had been a guest on hundreds and hundreds of podcasts, but I had never interviewed anybody. And this charity started paying me and asking me to do it. And I remember the first time I was like, I hope it's a similar muscle. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I have no idea. And then I was like, I don't know. I've talked to somebody at a party for an hour I didn't like and I didn't know anything about. I can figure it out. Like, I'm not saying there's not skill to it, but at this point, I literally professionally talk for a living. I think anything in this realm, I can figure it out. And just kind of with your dyslexia that you've been kind of open, I think I'd imagine, do you have people that come up to you that say like, thank you for talking about it or, you know, your experience is similar to mine? Yeah, there's a, so I did a, um, because I've talked about it a lot on podcasts, um, somebody sent an interview I did in London to the people that wrote The Dyslexic Advantage, and they do a conference every year, and I got invited to speak at the conference, and then they filmed the conference, and then they put the conference online, and I would say I get at least a couple of emails every week from somebody that saw what that video. What are those video. like? They're, I mean, they're the nicest one. I mean, it's always... It always feels like if they watched my comedy, they probably wouldn't be fans. Um, <laughs> but it's always like moms and like, you know kids and like construction workers that are like, ah, because of you. Um, but it's usually people that haven't heard somebody openly talk about it and, and 
and you know, it's relatively funny for what it was. I had to be clean. It was awful. Um, but I, I talked about growing up dyslexic about how I pretty much faked my way through school and I never, it's not that I didn't want to apply myself. There just wasn't much set up to apply myself. And in a lot of ways, figuring out how to get through school is kind of helped me throughout life because nothing is really easy. And if you really want to do something, you have to figure it out. And I, I'm, I'm still frustrated by my dyslexia every day. Um, but it is also, there's also, because my brain works differently than most people, I have advantages, like truly. And I, I, I can, I can see, I can see and how I see the world and how I joke about the world, how there's some stuff that can't be taught because some of it is just my brain works that way. Just like, you know, um, it's, it's not a good example, but they used to talk about how, um, what was the, Lance Armstrong. They used to be like, well, the reason he's so successful is because he has, a, you know, his lungs are bigger and they can pump more oxygen. I mean, now they know they, he did drugs and blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure there's some case to be said by certain athletes having just a superior body. You know what I mean? Take away drugs. Oh, yeah. There's just some people that already have the advantage. You know, a basketball has the advantage. A basketball player is, if they're six, seven, or actually they're more like seven something, there's an advantage to that. And, you know, being dyslexic, there's a disadvantage to all this school shit, but there's an advantage to all this make-believe shit. And and I'm fortunate that I wanted to have a career in make-believe shit. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break. We're going to talk about one of my sponsors, Manscaped. Support for Where's This Going comes from Manscaped, who is number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for all of your family jewels. That's a great line. Liz, would you agree with me in saying this is a, a pretty important thing for that men need to be addressing a little bit more? Sure. Anything that anything that makes women's lives uh, less um, furry. <laughs> <laughs> Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. They actually sent me this perf this perfect package 2.0 that has everything that you need to perfect a deeply important and perfectible area. That package comes with the Lawnmower 2.0, which is an electric trimmer that has proprietary skin safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your jewels. It also comes with the plow, the crop reviver, and the crop preserver, which is an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. <laughs> You already put deodorant on your armpits, so why aren't you putting deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? It also comes with the three disposable shaving mats for when you're on the road. And if you order today, you'll get this beautiful leather travel bag that they sent me that I actually love. It's called The Shed as a complimentary gift. That's an $137 value for just $74.99 if you order today. And better yet, when you use promo code WTG, you get an extra 20% off and free shipping, which brings the price down to just $60. If you know anything about math, that's a steal. I don't know what you're waiting for, gentlemen. Go get your below-the-belt grooming tools today. One last recommendation, please don't use the same trim on your face that you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Once again, use promo code WTG and receive 20% off your next order at manscaped.com. They just went heavy into like shed, lawnmower, 
they, they just really, they're, they're just trying to make it perfect. I guess. I mean, I feel like they should just advertise to Italians and like Lebanese people. I just don't know anybody else that's that hairy that would need. Italians, <laughs> Lebanese, I hope you're listening. Yeah. Like that's not, I mean, I'm very Italian. I'm just, I'm like rolling hair as we speak. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're, all right, let's get back into it. Um, there's one kind of theme that I, you know, I've, I think we talked, it's been about 45 minutes and just in kind of getting to know you, it's your very, not only you're brutally honest, you're, you're incredibly self-aware, I would say. That's Some, just my, sometimes. that's just my, that's just my, <laughs> my interpretation. Um, <laughs> do you feel like you've always had that awareness or is that something that because you talk about being gritty and, you know, looking at your work and, and being truthful with yourself instead of trying to convince yourself something's good, do you think it's an innate quality you have or did you have like a moment with a family or a friend that, you know, was like, hey, you need to do this or you need to do that and that kind of triggered that? I probably had more self-awareness in my comedy way before I had self-awareness as a person. Um, I just, because I'm a researcher, because I cared so much about comedy, everything was about getting better and getting better you had to be truthful with yourself and I'm a very sensitive, emotional person and so I don't like getting notes from others. I don't like any criticism, let alone constructive criticism, which for the longest time felt like an attack. And so there was something about being my own coach and being my own teacher that allowed me to not get triggered or defensive. But if I was going to have that route where you didn't have a mentor and you didn't have somebody give you notes, you had to be brutally honest. And I, I, I felt like all the research I had done was was the only way to get better is to really gauge the reactions from the audience and you can't sugarcoat it to per, you know preserve your ego. And so I think I was very early on self-aware in my comedy. That being said, everywhere else I was not and I was pretty miserable to be around and I was pretty not fun to be friends with or date again until say about three to five years ago and um I could the information could get through occasionally like there was a comic one of the first comics to bring me on the road um and I remember he was driving me home I was in college and I was featuring for him and he was dropping me off and he's like hey I just wanted to say something and I was like okay and he was like have you been writing and I was like yeah and he goes, I just feel like the last couple of months, it's been very similar material. And I was like, well, I'm in college, Jim. Like, I don't know what to tell, like, I'm busy. And I was like, really angry about it. And I was like, what the, f and like, I remember being like, really just pissed off. And then a couple days later, I was like, I mean, he's right. He is right. Like, I haven't, like, I haven't been writing. I've been overwhelmed with school. I've been doing the same stuff. I'm definitely stuck. I feel like I have writer's block. I feel like whatever. And I started to be like, all right, well, if people are noticing, especially people I care about, especially people that are giving me work, I should fix that. And it was the first time that I was like, okay, I need to be okay with that kind of input. And that kind of input is going to make me better. And he was one of the first people to bring me on the road and one of the first people to truly support me and, and recommend me for stuff. And so, you know, I had... As much as it was painful to hear criticism, I had to know that this person, I had to do that mental gymnastics where I'm like, 
He's not trying to hurt me. He supports me. Every action, everything he's ever said to me has been to benefit my career. Why do I, why is my first initial reaction, fuck you, you don't know me? Because the truth of the matter is he did. He did and he cared and he was the one getting me the most work at a time where nobody was getting me work. So maybe his words have value. And I wish I was able to maintain that thought with everybody else for the next 10 years and I was not. But um, I got dumped by like my first like real boyfriend when I was 25 and it was like a devastation. Like I thought we were going to get married even though I didn't care. I thought we were going to have kids. I didn't want them but it's still he made promises and I was like I guess I'll get there when I get there. And I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. And we lived together for six months. He stopped talking to me two days after we moved in together. Um, and I had a complete emotional breakdown. And I was, like, not where I wanted to be in comedy. And now this man that I loved uh, pretty much told me he doesn't love me anymore. And I was homeless for a couple of months. Uh, I was sleeping on my sister's uh, – I was sharing a bed with my sister – um, I went to LA for a little while and slept in my other friend's bed to just get away. But it was a couple of months where I was like, I didn't know who I was and what I was doing. And I was just kind of lost. And um, everyone, my ex, now ex at the time, my best friend and another friend were like, I think you need a therapist. Um, you got some baggage. And again, I had that kind of epiphany where I'm like, if the people I love think I need emotional help, maybe I should get some emotional help. And I started seeing a therapist when I was 25. It was the best decision. I mean, getting dumped by this guy and just having my heart ripped out of my body and kind of starting over um, on all realms and seeing a therapist were probably, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I It took, it was probably a very painful two years. I was deeply, deeply depressed um, I'm very fortunate that I don't deal with my emotions, so I'm workaholic. Like, I don't, I've never been a, a big drinker. I mean, I started smoking pot again that time, but I just was having panic attacks, so it wasn't even that fun for me anymore. So I just kind of threw myself into work, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to write. I'm, you know, I, if I was getting up 20 times a week when I was a teenager, I was probably getting up 25 times a week when I was depressed because I was like, I don't want to be, I was like, I, I know enough, whether it's instinctual or not, I read a lot, but like I knew enough that I needed the endorphins to get through the day because I was deeply depressed. So I would run every morning, get myself some free drugs, and then I would do stand-up at night and get myself some free drugs. Like this kind of endorphin and like the high of running and like the high of uh, getting laughs kind of got me through this depression and just writing a lot and kind of getting a lot of the emotions out in writing. But basically in therapy, it was about realizing that people can't talk to me. People can't, people can't, even people that love me, even people that ha are trying to help me, there's no way to get through to me. There's no way to connect with me. There's no way to talk to me. And it pushes people away. And I started to realize while I was being extremely vulnerable on stage, I was being absolutely the opposite off stage. I wouldn't tell people how I felt, whether I loved them or didn't like them. I wasn't open with anybody. I wasn't able to say sorry when I did hurt people or even acknowledge that I hurt people. I was very, very scared, I think is the best way to put it. And it was a horrible, horrible two years of really finding out what sucks about me. It was, it was brutal. And it was, um, what I would say the weird, not the weirdest thing, but the sad, funny truth of it is this guy that loved me kept trying to nicely tell me like, hey, you do this and you're making yourself miserable. And hey, you do this and you're making me miserable. Or hey, you do this. And I think it it's, you know, um, causing everybody a lot of pain. And I couldn't hear it. It just felt like he was attacking me. And then I go to this therapist and she's like, hey, when you do this, you hurt people. And I was like, 
feel like I've heard this before. <laughs> um, and I started to realize that he was kindly, because he loved me, trying to help me, and I refused. And through therapy, I started to process everything that I hated about myself. And I would say it was two years of hearing it and trying to fix it, and another three years of watching myself do it and still not being able to fix it. And then the rest, you know, I, I'm still a work in progress, but I can... I can look at my actions and sometimes stop myself before doing them, um, be honest about them. I mean, you know, you had Carmen on the show and I lived with Carmen for four years and she was also a big part of my growth. She's also seen me at my lowest. Um, she moved into my apartment about nine, a little, little less than a year after that breakup. So I was a pretty big mess. And um, she was one of those people that, that would tell me things and I would be hurt and then I'd be like, but she loves me and she cares about me. So why am I, what am I? And I had to kind of dig deeper and be like, this has nothing to do with Carmen. And that's what I do every day. I'm an exhausting person to be around. Every day I have to do this mental gymnastics because I have almost the opposite of rose co color glasses. I call them like piss color glasses where I'm like, everybody's trying to hurt me. Everybody's trying to ruin my day. Nobody likes me. And it's, it's just this I'm just like my brain is kind of broken with dyslexia. My emotions are kind of broken and I have to, I feel like I'm a cat that got abandoned and I'm just like this feral cat that's like, I trust nobody. And then like a nice old woman brings me in and I'm like, I don't trust this bitch. I don't know who she is. She keeps putting food out, but I don't trust it. And I've had to like undo that wiring. Like every time somebody emotionally picks me up and pets me, I have to be like, this is a safe place. This is a safe place don't bite her face. <laughs> like, and that's, and that's been where that like self-awareness has come from. It is a lot of work and it's still daily a lot of work. I mean, I, I thank you. I, I love that story, <laughs> but also I think what's, what's kind of interesting and I think it's also kind of remarkable is most people when they're having, you know, uh, I'd imagine a, a period of depression or downtime, you know, the, I think the human instinct is to roll up in a ball and kind of just, you know, cry or do whatever that people do. But the fact that you go out and then you're doing more shows, one, I think is impressive. But I'm also kind of curious as a comedian. I mean, you talk about getting those laughs was something that I imagine was really helpful for you. Um, but how does going from being, you know, in your personal life, super, you know, in a low place to then going on stage and... You're supposed to make people laugh. How do you kind of, do you have to make an extra switch? Or you still have to, because you can tell when a comedian steps on stage and they bring a certain energy with them. How do you leave that kind of like, or did you leave that, you know, maybe more so negative energy off stage? And then when you go on stage, it's like a blank canvas. Well, I mean, I now professionally write sad jokes. Um, I think I've always kind of professionally written sad jokes. So I don't think I have to really change who I am because I'm already talking about death and depression and drugs and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I have like, I could do 20 minutes on mental illness and suicide. Like, I, I mean, I, the nice thing about not having a boss is nobody tells you what you can and can't talk about. I mean, you can ostracize an audience and I've definitely made shows difficult for myself, but I was talking about stuff I was going through and it was, you know, I, I don't want to say cathartic. I mean, there's catharsis in it because you're processing it and you're talking about it and you're sharing it. I think more of that was done through therapy, but the actual writing and people 
responding to it in a positive way. I mean, I feel like I am, you know, hashtag blessed that I was able to make a joke about a breakup and people and got I got something from it. I got dumped by this man that I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I got like 20 minutes of material. Like most people, maybe they get a kid. Who wants a kid? Like, I mean, I got real tangible stuff from it. And like, I remember writing those jokes and getting laughs out of it and being able to do even the mental gymnastics before I got healthy to go, well, at least I got that out of it. At least I got that out of it. And I think whenever I go through something difficult, if I'm able to get a joke out of it, it's like, well, you know, most people go around saying, you know, everything happens for a reason. But when do you ever get that reason? I mean, I can very, in a very small, sad, pathetic way, a joke is always a reason. I've gotten material out of it. I connected with others. People, you know, now I put videos online and I get messages that are just like, what? It's like your brain's in my brain. <laughs> like, it's it's really rewarding. And so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that, like, I joke with my, you should have Adrian Appalucci on if you haven't. I mean, she's the best. Um, super dark. <laughs> I mean, like, truly, like, I'm, a, I'm, Pleasant. I had Carmen, I have you, and then we'll go Adrian. Adrian. Yeah, truly. And we're and I mean we're all really close, but Adrian's absolutely brilliant. And a, me and Adrian were talking about it the other day where like somebody was just like, How do you how do you have a bad day and then go on stage? I was like, bad day. I've hysterically cried in my car, done an hour, and then got back in my car and cried again. Like you know, I I care about what I'm doing and you know, most people have to go and do an eight hour day. I just have to do a one hour day. You know, I, I, I was on stage a couple of months ago, like when it was fucking raining every day. And I'm just like, you know, wearing like sweatpants, my hair's in a bun or whatever. And I was like, and I was under a heated blanket. It was like one of those cold rainy days. And I was just like, I, you guys are the first people I talked to. I didn't, I barely got out of bed. I mean, you got to rest up for 20 minutes of work every day. Like nobody talks about how exhausting this is. Like, but I, you know, you could talk about like, how do you get on? It, I, I'm not doing real work. I, I've saved no one. I've helped no one. I mean, the least I can do is do my 20 minute spot. Like that's the least I can do on this day. I mean, comedy is always what has gotten me out of bed in the morning, even on my saddest days. Would you feel it like it's another form of therapy for you? Um, yeah. I mean, it's limited because you have to have a punchline and what makes you start a joke might not be why you end a joke. Um, but even that initial writing where like, I don't even try to make it funny. It's just like, I hope everyone I know dies. Like that initial, just like get all the feelings out definitely is cathartic. What it ends up being, maybe not so because it it's, there's the constraint of it has to be funny. And, you know, I had a, I had a bit go viral a couple of years ago called Feminist Sex Positions. And I had all these people writing articles about feminist comedian Liz Mealy. And I was like, eh, 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 eh. you can say I'm a comedian that is a feminist. That is a fact. But if you put feminist before my job title, now you put me in a box that I'm only going to disappoint you. I'm, I'm a moron. I am going to ruin things. Like I am not, I'm not, the perfect person, I'm not the perfect woman, and I will never be the perfect feminist. And while I have feminist ideas, I also have ignorant ideas. And my job at the end of the day, if I make a point, it's almost by accident. <laughs> like my job is to make people laugh. And my dream is to make as many people laugh 
that I want to make laugh and I'm able to pay my rent that way. But like I'm, I'm, you can't, the goal is always to make people laugh. That's the beginning and end. Like I can't, I can't have anything put on the end of it. Like if I save somebody's life, that's great. But I'm also, I'm sure I've ruined so many people's days. The comments in half my videos will let you know I've ruined many people's days. <laughs> Do you have any best bombing stories? What's it like when you bomb? Um, it depends on the bomb. Some some aren't as bad. I mean, I I don't want to say I purposely bomb, but I... Does it get to you? It depends. So, like, tonight, I'll probably bomb all night tonight. Um, they're all, like, one's a bar show, which if you don't pay me, I'm, I'm going to do new jokes. I consider it new jokes. And then some of these jokes, uh, some of these nights at, like, the cellar, they have the fat black, and that's set up to do... It's literally, they advertise as new material. Tonight, I'm at um, New York Comedy Club, and it's Michael Costa's show, and it's advertised as new material. You can bring your phone, your notebook. You can be as sloppy or as prepared as you want to be. And I will take a giant uh, dump on stage. I don't care. Like, I'll be all over the place. It's for me. You know, I'll try to have some semblance because people are there. But um, if I'm working on new material and I'm not bombing, I'm I'm not taking any risks. And if you're not taking any risks, you're not actually saying anything. You're not growing. And so I think to say if somebody says they never bomb, then they're not saying anything and they're not growing. I, I fully believe that. Um, same way that you would talk about if you're not making mistakes, you're not experimenting, you're not trying. Um, now, when you are trying and you bomb, that never feels good. Um, sometimes it's the audience and depending on how long I have to do in this situation, I can pull myself away and be like, you know what? I did the best I could and this was a shitty situation. Um, it wasn't set up for comedy. Um, it wasn't right. I wasn't the right match for them, blah, 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 blah. But if I did the best I could do and it still didn't go well, I can walk away being like, you know what? I showed up to work. You know, I did my best and that's not my problem. Where I really beat myself up is where I don't handle myself or calibrate or or um, assimilate or adjust the way I should in a situation. If I'm doing a charity event where people are already kind of like uptight and, you know, we're raising money for cancer and maybe I'm bombing and it helps nobody to attack anybody. The, you know what I mean? It's a weird situation you know, where there people like people are paying two hundred dollars a plate so that they can give money for this foundation, and they probably didn't even tell them a comedian was coming. And if I'm being a dick, or if I'm, you know, I do a joke that might have not been right for the situation, or I get flustered, or I start doing something I'm not proud of, that's when it'll affect me. That's when I go home and I eat all the ice cream and I go, "We're better than this, Liz. We're better than this." And that's that's where I really get upset. Like. It still happens. I, you know, there's good days and bad days. I've, I, I, but I've had bombs where I walk away and I've been like, eh. and I've told audience, I would be like, just so you know, it's you. Like, I know you're wondering, like, this doesn't seem like it's going well. I wonder why it's you. Like, I'll tell you when it's me. I'll absolutely take ownership. I had a, I'm actually going to go to this, this club next week, but I did two shows at this club in Connecticut. First show was like magical. It was amazing. Second show was one of the worst shows of my entire career. What? This, so... The problem when you don't have a huge fan base is it's mostly people just coming to see a show. And it was a bachelor party. And it was, you know, front row. Like, this is this is the stage, this long table. And it's like eight dudes, probably in their late 30s, early 40s. The This guy's like macho. 
And I go to walk on stage. You see, I'm, I look like a child. So I'm walking towards the stage and this guy puts his hand up, almost looked like he was going to hit me. I guess he was going for a high five, but I was like, Jesus, dude, like, what are you doing? And so immediately they start talking to me. You know, I haven't, nobody knows who I am. Most people probably didn't even see that interaction. They start talking to me. I was like, dude, you got to calm down. Like, what are you doing? And so I start talking to them. It's kind of awkward. They're not fun to talk to. I go into my set and they start talking loudly. And I was like, come on, guys, you're in front of the stage. You've already been distracting, like kind of get your shit together. So then it becomes this banter, da, 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 da. Again, I go back into stuff. And then it was just like, well, if you're funny, maybe we wouldn't have to talk to each other. I go, well, you know what? That's subjective because you haven't been quiet enough, long enough to hear what I have to do. How about we make a negotiation? I'll put the timer on. You give me five minutes. I'll tell some jokes. And maybe if you can be quiet long enough, you'll understand that I'm here for a reason. Two minutes in, he goes, nah, I've had enough. I go, fuck you, man. Fuck your face. Fuck your wife. She probably made a huge mistake, you piece of shit. I mean, I lost my shit. I was like, fuck everyone in your fucking family. And like, I was just texting my sister. It's her birthday in a couple of weeks and I was sending her a gift. And I was like, is this your address? Because she's in LA. And she goes, yeah. And she's like, I don't deserve a gift. Please don't send me anything. I was like, fuck, go fuck yourself. Like fucking shut the fuck up. I love you so much. Shut up. And she's like, you love so aggressively. I was like, I'll kill your whole family. It's coming in three days. Like I'm just, but he, he fucking triggered me. He didn't give me a chance. I was like, he was the problem. He wouldn't admit that he was a problem. I did not handle it professionally. And what I said to him, which really, I should have taken it back. And if I was not triggered or if I was in the right head place, I would have, but I literally said, it's a mistake. Your wife made a mistake. And, you sh and I feel bad for her. And I saw it in his eyes. I saw like, you know, when you see when you've hurt somebody and I saw him get up, I saw it in his eyes and I had a chance to be like, I didn't mean it and I'm sorry. And that was inappropriate. And I didn't say it. I said it to the audience like 10 minutes later. I was like, I take complete ownership because it got even more awkward. And then it was like, and they were nice and, but it never was like vibe. And it was like, I had a, like 20 minutes and that all happened like five to 10 minutes in. And like there was 20 minutes in, I was just like, I ruined this and I feel bad and I'm going to tell you some stories and like I kind of gave it, but it was like, I, and then I drove home that night and it was like a two hour drive. My roommate was with me because he spent the weekend with me and I was like, I'm just going to talk to you to process that because I'm really ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of what I said. I'm ashamed of how I reacted. Um, I don't think it ever would have been a great show, but it could have been an okay show and I feel really bad. For, like it, no one deserves that level of anger because somebody was like, he is a piece of shit. Like he is like, that's a fact, but I don't have to be a piece of shit to anybody. And just because he doesn't know how to be a thoughtful adult doesn't mean I have to be a, a unthoughtful adult. And I have to just how like, we're all talking about in this day and age that people have privileges and power and there's a power dynamic. I have to remember that even though I'm barely five foot one, I'm a, you know, I look like I'm 21 years old. I do have power. There's 150 people here to see me. I have a microphone. The lights are on me. Um, I have an assemblance of power and I have to use that appropriately. And that's when I get really upset with myself. That was one of the worst nights of my career. Speaking of like power and the fact that the lights are on you now and like, you know, you know that, what, do you, do you feel a responsibility, or maybe you don't, but if you if you were to advise a young comedian or someone who's interested in comedy, what do you think is maybe the best piece of advice you've ever received? And now that you are, you know, 15 plus years into this career, what would be the best piece of advice you'd give for a young comedian? 
that wants to get better at comedy or like wants to do this full time? That I mean, wants to do it for a living. Um, if you want to do it for a living, I would say, and this is a hard thing to say because I didn't have it, patience with yourself both comedically and goal-wise. I think I definitely used comedy to fill a void of how I felt about myself. I had a lot of self-hate. I felt very invisible uh, growing up. I felt very unloved and um, unseen. And I used my comedy success as a way to validate my existence. And when I would achieve something, it meant that I was worthy of love and I was a person. And if I didn't achieve something, I wasn't worthy of love and I wasn't a person uh, or a good enough person. And as I've gotten healthier, I've been able to kind of make that, um, not separate that connection of who I am as a person and the success in my life and in my career. And if I had had more patience, if I had had um, more of a separation of comedic Liz and normal regular person Liz, um, I wouldn't have taken rejection so hard. I would have been a little more patient before I put myself out there and um, went after some of my goals. I, I think there's people that never go after their goals for fear. And I almost so aggressively went out of my, after my goals, I have a fear of not being good enough and not being seen. And um, you can very much see how aggressive I am comedically and um, professionally but I, I, I wish I had some of, I wish I had more patience and I wish I uh, valued myself enough to wait until I was really ready to show who I was comedically. But I was just like so desperate for attention and love. What was the best piece of advice that you ever received growing up? I, in ter- comedy wise. I don't know, man. I, I'm very fortunate that a lot of people were always there for me and helped me. I mean, I had a um, phone email friendship with George Carlin until he died. Um, you know, I've had many people bring me on the road. Um, it was, I mean, the best advice that I was probably given was just, <laughs> it takes time and and to be honest about reactions. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is like a quintessential like quote or something, but for the most part, it was just, you know, be present in the room, work off the audience, be realistic with yourself about how things are actually going. Beautiful. So there, you can find all of Liz's work on LizMealy.com, mm-hmm. on Instagram at LizMealy, Twitter LizMealy. You have all of your albums are on iTunes and Amazon. Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of upcoming shows in Brigada, Maryland, Boston, all over. A bunch in New York. You could check all that out on LizMealy.com. There's a lot of, honestly, as I said in the beginning, it's a a really great site. There's all the links to the podcast that you've done, to all the press that you've been in. Um, It's truly, uh, it's been an honor to have you on my show. And, uh, you know, I think one of probably the most hardworking people I've ever met, um, to be honest. And no, and I, and I say that with a, with a lot of, um, it's very inspiring to hear, especially for a lot of people who probably maybe naturally aren't, they feel like they're not good at anything. And I think hopefully they listen and they can know that, you know, you don't, 
maybe you don't feel like you're good at anything, but if you work at it, you might be. So thank you. Thank you. This is the most comfortable chair I've ever been in, and it was a pleasure. 